Welcome to Food Farms and Chefs radio show, where we highlight everyone from the top industry leaders to startups and farmers that make it all possible with Chef Jean Blum and photojournalist Amaris Pollock. On this week's episode, we're mixing it up with a celebrity chef, a cocktail guru, and ending the show with, by celebrating Christmas around the globe. At this time, it's an absolute wonderful honor to introduce chef, eater, storyteller, teacher, uh, Food Network Chop Champion, uh, one of the alumni for Snack versus Chef on Netflix, Chef Clara Park. Clara, welcome to Food Farms and Chefs. Great honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Clara, there's a lot to talk about with you. Obviously, you know, you're great. Um, competition world, but really a, a lot of your culinary background. You know, you're you're bringing in some of your uh, family's history to a lot of the dishes you made. Um, you know, you started out early with uh, you know being involved in wing wars in Atlantic City, but you know here in Philadelphia, I mean, you you've been a prominent chef for a while, but you're not from, well, you're from Philadelphia, but you did your education. And a lot of your culinary background and, and you know, pre-Philadelphia in not only the West Coast, but in France itself and, and your education in New York. Tell us a little bit about your education, your upbringing and your inspiration. Uh, sure. So I, I grew up on the main line um, from eight to 18. I went to Baldwin and Penn Valley Elementary. And then I went to University of Chicago, got a degree in psychology I started a PhD at Columbia, uh, hated it. So I, I dropped out with just a master's and my parents took me on a trip to uh, South Korea and China for a month. And my dad said, we're not gonna eat the same thing twice for 30 days. And we didn't. And I, I think my family loves food. We love cooking, we love eating, we love travel. And I think that trip just solidified in me that I want to work with food. I want to be a chef. I don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a banker. And I came back and I found a chef that I had met at a, a benefit. And um, I just reached out to him and I said, um, hey, you know, I want to be a chef and I want to learn more about this. And he let me stage at his restaurant, which happened to be 11 Madison Park, which is one of the best restaurants in the world. So literally my first kitchen was 11 Madison Park Kitchen, which by any stretch is, it's an unbelievable kitchen. It's huge, it's beautiful. Uh, everyone that's working there has um, you know, a lot of skill and the food that they do is really amazing. And then I was hooked the, from the first night I was there. Then I did the work study program at the Institute of Culinary Education in New York, uh, worked off my tuition for a year. Then I attended classes for a year. And then it's always been my dream to live in San Francisco. So I moved to San Francisco the day after I graduated and I did my externship at restaurant Gary Danko, um, which was the best restaurant in San Francisco at the time, because this is like a million years ago. And uh, I worked at Gary Danko town hall. And then I had an opportunity to work for Richard Reddington in uh, Napa Valley. So the same chef that was the chef at 11 Madison Park, uh, Carrie Heffernan, was in my restaurant in San Francisco to tell me to go work for Richard Reddington, which is, I mean, that's deus ex machina. That's, that's a scripted movie moment that my mentor from New York was in San Francisco to tell me to move to Napa and go work for this guy. Uh, so I did, and I learned a lot about, you know, high quality ingredients, wine pairing, what it means to know your farmer. Like the quail farmer would show up with like, you know, three dozen quail. He's like, oh, Wolf Ranch quail, here you go. And it was a totally different way of, 
approaching food because we knew who was making the food, who was catching the food, who was foraging the food. Um, so it was a much more intimate relationship and, you know, the food tastes better, obviously. Um, but it's also building a community. And that's something that as I've gotten older has gotten, you know, very, very important to me. Um, so I missed home. So I came back to the East coast, uh, I worked for David Chang and Peter Serpico at Momofuku Co. I worked for Mark, uh, Mark Vetri and Jeff Michaud at Osteria when they first opened up. Um, and my sous chef there was uh, Joey Baldino, who is to this day a wonderful friend. Polizzi Social Club, I think, is the best place to eat in Philadelphia, if you can get in. Um, and I've been back on the East Coast now since, I think, 2009 or 2010. So you're right. A lot of my backstory is not in Philadelphia, but I am a proud Philadelphian and you know, in terms of my food and how I approach things, um, most recently on Snack for a Chef, um, the snacks that I did were, you know, they were American, they were Middle Eastern, they were Korean, uh, you know, influenced. And I think that's the beauty of food now, right? Um, I'm Korean American. I grew up eating pretty much Korean and American foods, but I've been able to go to Italy. I've been able to go to France and Spain, and I've been able to, you know, learn French and, and just try all different things. And I think the greatest thing about Philadelphia is that you can find anything you want. You know, if you want injera at an Ethiopian restaurant, you can go get it. If you want to get hand pulled noodles in Chinatown, you can get it. If you want to have, um, what's that? Oh, mangosteen used to be impossible to get in the United States. I was just at River Wars. They cost like $3 a piece, very expensive, but it's an unbelievable fruit that you couldn't get, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And now it's at the market, which is right by my house. And I, I think, um, it's exciting, you know, to be able to try all these different things and then you can have all these resources and meet people from all over the world that have all these really rich food cultures. And I think that that's just really, it's an exciting time to, to be alive, to, to be a chef, to be an eater. And um, I'm going to be writing about authenticity and ethnic food and um, what it is to be a chef with a certain, you know, cultural background and how I feel about the food that I make, the food that I'm allowed to make. Um, that's going to be in Philly Mag, I think, sometime this month, online. One of the things that I truly love about you, and there's, you know, all degrees of chefs when it comes to, you know, how they approach food. And I'm admired of you because you, too, are a storyteller. Thank you. Uh, you tell a story with your food, with the lessons that you give, you know, and you give lessons to places like Old City Kitchen uh, in Philadelphia, Laura's uh, fabulous venue there. The free library, you've been at Reading Terminal Market, you've done with the Philip Public Schools. But that, I, I taught school for 15 years. And one of the things that was important to me was, you know, I can teach a lot of people to cook, but if I teach them the story behind the culture and the food, they become so much better. Absolutely. And I like that about you, that 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 storytelling you know, eater, you're not shy about diving in and, and telling people about the culture. And I, I think that that's the next degree where, where we have to look in the world. So that being said, what's next for you? So I have um, a stream on Kitsch, so www.kitsch.com. So I love teaching. And what I love about that platform is you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. So if you want to do like kitchen tips, lessons, cooking hacks, um, I'm envisioning something, uh, maybe like 12 days of snacks or 12 days of like drink hacks or whatever for the holiday season. Um, and I, I love the, the freedom and the, the creativity. Um, and so they give a lot of 
agency to the chef creators. So that's something that I will do this month. The article from Philly Mag is going to come out. Um, and then I'm on the advisory council for the Culinary Literacy Center at the Free Library of Philadelphia. And we had a ridiculously successful culinary passport cooking series where we went to four different countries. Uh, so it was South Korea, which I did. Italy with Joey Baldino, Mexico with uh, Francisco Ramirez, um, and Israel with uh, Yehuda Seichel. And it was a crazy success. We sold out all four classes. So next year, probably starting in February, we're going to do part two of the culinary passport. So I'm imagining Argentina, Laos, French Canada, you know, maybe Haiti, but it'll be four new countries, four different chefs. Uh, they're going to share their expertise and their culture through their food. And I, I think it's it's been really amazing to see just how excited people are uh, to try different things, learn different things. And I think the Culinary Literacy Center is one of the greatest uh, you know, resources we have in the area. And um, I'm a big fan of libraries, public education, and you know, making lessons accessible uh, to the public. And so I'm really proud of the work that we're doing there. And I'm really excited for that uh, next, next unit. Well, you really, too, have so many different catches to get young folks inspired. I mean, obviously, your heritage and, and your love of food. But then, and I, I don't really want to spend much time on it, but, you know, being on shop, being that TV celebrity, winning, you know, <laughs> doing all that, uh, you know, that draws so many people in. I mean, food TV had, when I was teaching for 15 years, it was so important in drawing kids in and you would... You know, they would be inspired. They all wanted to be the next network chef and, you know, great chef and things like that. But they came in and then you, you again, you tell that story and you, and you, you know, strive. What's next in your travels? So I'm probably going to go back down to Charleston. Uh, my baby brother and his family live there. So I like to spend Christmas with my nieces and nephews. So that's probably going to be happening uh, in the next few weeks. And then a friend of mine just moved to London. So I'd love to go visit her. Um, I'm just excited that we can travel again <laughs> and reconnect yes. with people. Um, but to your point about food television, uh, you're right. It's really powerful. It's accessible. Um, I don't even know how many people have seen the Chopped episode. I mean, it's like 10 years old, but people still come up to me and say, oh my gosh, I saw you on Chopped. I was rooting for you, blah, blah, blah. And then now with um, the Netflix show, Snack for a Chef, it's crazy. It's streaming in 100 countries. Um, I've gotten messages from Korea. My friends have gotten messages from the Philippines, from Jamaica, from Liberia. It's insane, the reach of the show. But from a kid point of view, all of my nieces and nephews and my friends' kids are spouting off what the contestants and the judges have been saying, which is hilarious. So I was in Battle Pringle, and my best friend's son requested Pringles from the shop, right? And so she, you know, she brought them home and then he just started spouting all these facts. Like, you'll notice there are no bubbles on the Pringles and they're all exactly the same shape. And it's like, he watched episode once and he, you know, retained all this information and um, they're all kind of like acting like judges now and like two minutes or two minutes chefs. And from one viewing, the show has impacted these kids like immensely. They learned a lot about how difficult it is to make these snacks and I think we hit number one for kids shows on Netflix like almost immediately and I think it's because everybody loves snacks especially kids and to learn how they're made and what makes them special in a way that's digestible pun intended um, <laughs> for children I think is what's making it um, 
so popular. And I just, yeah, my friend told me that what our, what our kids were saying, I was, I was dying. Cause I thought it was so, so cute that he was sharing the information, which she had also, you know, she'd also seen it as well, but I, I think it's really great to um, make things entertaining, but educational for kids and adults. And I think, I think the best food television does that, right? You enjoy watching it. Um, it doesn't require a lot of energy or mental capacity on your part, but do you walk away from it with um, added knowledge and added value that'll help you cook and eat and shop and um, be like a better consumer? So I, I'm a big fan of like, what is it? Edutainment is what they're calling it, right? It's, yes, it's, it it's both things, yeah. And I, I think this, this podcast also does that, right? Like, I feel like every time I, I tune in, I learn about, you know, ice cream or spices or how to make beer. And I think that that's, what's really great about it. Um, because again, it's, it's digestible. You can listen to it at the gym or while you're driving. Well, and that's what, you know, the one thing that no matter where you're from, what your culture is, whether you're Korean or Israeli or, you know, Scandinavian, we all can come together on food and, and have some common you know, experiences about breaking bread with family or trying new dishes. And, you know, you've been a big help in, in introducing people to a lot of different things through your show, through your uh, programs, everything like that. You know, one of my favorites was watching your episode about Korean fried chicken. Yeah. Well, I knew what Korean fried chicken was. I made Korean fried chicken. I learned so much that day. I took it to a whole new level. And <laughs> something I do now with, you know, my, my children and my family. And you've been an inspiration. I have two daughters who have that travel bug, uh, both love food. Um, you know, one's getting ready to do a semester abroad in Japan. And, you know, very excited about that. I was talking to her about, you know, the Christmas tradition of, of fried chicken in Japan, yeah. where you literally need to make your KFC reservations two months in advance. But you know, and then my other daughter is getting ready to do another month over in Europe, just traveling around. And, you Amazing. know, I keep telling them it's time to, you know, get a real job and be an adult now, <laughs> you know, but, you know, I guess in time that'll happen. <clears throat> um, but, you know, you've been such an inspiration for, and I don't want to say the millennials, but a, in a whole entire population of people that you're inspiring to go out and say, hey, Let's try these different things. Let's blend these cultures. Let's look at that. So, you know, thank you for that. And, and kudos for you, that, you know, for that. Thank you. So you also skipped over a little bit of time you did in France when you were doing your uh, your intro. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your time over there? Sure. So my culinary school, I, sorry, Institute of Culinary Education has a relationship with a luxury country inn called Le Moulin Brejon in uh, the Loire Valley. So it's in this little tiny town called Linear Bouton, population like 100. And um, Jonathan Robinson is an American painter who went over to France and he just had a vision. He saw this dilapidated wheat mill from, I don't know, 1600s. And it was in shambles, like nothing was working, but he just saw this rundown wheat mill on this huge plot of land and he bought it and he renovated it and he tried to keep all the original details. So when you go into the building, you see the gears and you see like the ropes and the things for grinding wheat. Uh, and it's it's a really spectacular place and they have their own garden. They've got fruit trees, they've got chickens that lay eggs. Um, so on any given day, 
You might be using uh, butter lettuce and rhubarb and cucumbers from the garden. You might be picking nectarines from the trees. You might be grabbing eggs from the chickens uh, for breakfast or omelets, or you know, you're whipping up a souffle. And so that was probably one of the happiest times of my life, just to be able to use amazing ingredients literally outside my door. And you know, we had a dialogue. So when guests would arrive from all over the world, I'd say, hey, I'm Clara, I'm your chef, and uh, I'm really excited to have you here. What do you want to eat while you're in France? And, you know, people would say like, oh, you know, whatever you want, or I like duck, or I like foie gras, or I really like cheese. Um, but a lot of times people would say, oh, yeah, whatever, we eat everything, which is never true. So then the, the counter question became, is there anything that you don't eat? And then that's when it's like, I don't like anchovies. I don't like, you know, awful. I don't like, uh, I don't like quail. Um, but it became this really fun, immersive experience. And, um, some of my guests were like, you know, this, this is some of the best food I've ever had in my life. And that was very endearing, but I think a big part of the reason was the dialogue and the relationship that we built before they even started eating. And it's like, Hey, this woman really cares about what I'm eating and wants me to, to be happy and have, have a great time. And then you look out at the garden, the story, Gene. oh my gosh, this salad came from this garden that we walked by on the way into this building. And I think that it's such an emotional response and it's fully immersive. And I think that that is, I think everyone deserves to eat like that at some point. I know that it's not feasible for, for most people, but having, you know, hyper-local, seasonal, sustainable food um, prepared by someone who really cares to make it as delicious as possible, I think is one of life's greatest pleasures. And I, I was just having a discussion with someone, um, I was just in New York this past weekend, and, you know, the way that American society, uh, unfortunately, is stratified, it's that to get the best food and the best service, you have to have the most money. And if you go to Europe or Asia or South America, you can find good food anywhere. And I really want to adopt that sentiment for the American public where it's not like you have to be a hedge funder with a black card to have this exquisite meal because I think that anyone can learn to cook well. And so I think that that's why I do so much teaching. That's why I do so much volunteer work like Old City Kitchen, like doing classes there, doing classes at the library. Um, anyone can learn to cook, right? Ratatouille, anyone can learn to cook. And I think that really good food should be accessible to everybody. Um, and, you know, when you make someone a sandwich or a bowl of soup or, you know, even just like a scoop of ice cream, like if you put the time and care into it um, to make it better, that'll be a better experience for, for the diner. And that's something that I believe in very, very, very strongly. So on that note, before we close out, when I was teaching, I, I was up in the suburbs for most of it and then I was, um, in the city for a short amount of time. But one of the things that I was able to do, and it's right along this, and I'm, I'm gonna challenge you to, if you know we wanna do this, this is something we can do, because I know you are a big supporter of the Philadelphia School District as well, and their culinary programs. We did a program for my students, it was called Farm to the Table, and we literally got some grant money to take students out to farms, culinary students. And we got them out there getting their hands dirty, talking to the farmers, doing that, and then bringing product back to create meals. That's and amazing. all the Philadelphia students with it, you know, we were dealing with students who, you know, in some cases really never were out of the city. Yeah. And here they are in the farms of Lancaster or Bucks County at an herb farm or at, you know, a poultry farm and things like that. And I know just the person 
who knows their way around the city a little bit for or the, the state for grant money, uh, a good friend of mine who was a school teacher in Philadelphia, that, you know, maybe we could do something like that. And, you know, really uh, help influence students by giving them access to those products that they would never see before. Yeah, I would love that. That sounds that sounds amazing. I'm a huge fan of uh, Farmer John. Mm -hmm. she's, the, uh, she's the first certified organic black farmer, I think, in Pennsylvania, which is yep, yep. insane. And she's had an amazing journey. And I would love to introduce um, the students to her and all the wonderful work she's doing. So, yeah, definitely. I will. I'll, I'll reach out to you by email and we'll get that connect going. I was going to say, said, because we're running short on time, uh, tell our listeners where they can follow you, where they can. Sure. So you can uh, always find me on Instagram at Clara Park Cooks. You can find my website, www.claraparkcooks.com. And I look forward to hearing from you and uh, tune in to Netflix's Snack for a Chef. Uh, let's make it number one. I think it's number four right now. <laughs> let's do that. I'm all, I, I'm right behind that. And yep. Clara, thank you so much. It's always inspirational to, to uh, hear somebody with your passion and your desire to make a difference. Thank you for all you do. We look forward to talking to you again. And I look forward to working with you on a great project. I do too. Thank you guys for having me. No problem. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome. Hey everyone, it's Amaris Pollock and Jean Blum here from Food Farms and Chefs. We wanted to wish you a wonderful holiday season. And if you're looking for a delicious way to celebrate, you can tune in to Food Farms and Chefs on WWDB at 6 p.m. on Tuesdays. Welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. And at this time, I will love to introduce our Food Farms and Chefs family to Kia Nelson, who is the owner and creator of K Bloody Mary Mix. Kia, thank you for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm <laughs> honored. <laughs> I am too. Um, you know, and I'm honored as well to introduce our listeners to your your uh cocktail your bloody mary mix because i told you in person this i the i don't think i've said this on air quite yet but um i am not a bloody mary mix fan i really am not yours i tasted and i was like ooh i really like this so i have every ounce of me is like there our listeners need to know who you are where you got started, how you came up with this recipe. And I know that's a lot of questions at once. So let's <laughs> boil it down to, you know, how did you get into um, owning K Bloody Mary Mix? Like, how did this come about? Well, first, let me say thank you. Yes, you did in person tell me. And thank you so much. I'm so happy that you enjoy it. That's why I do it. I love converting people who think they don't like Bloody Marys. When people tell me that they don't, my first response to them is because you haven't had a good one yet. So... <laughs> Um, the fact that, you know, people who don't think they like them like mine is such an honor and, and why I do it. Um, but I got started uh, doing it not on purpose. It wasn't like I set up to set out to have a Bloody Mary company one day when I got older. Um, it just kind of happened out of, out of people having a great response to Bloody Marys I had been making um, at bars and restaurants that I had worked at here in New York. And um, you know, friends and family coming over, holidays, um, you know, I'd make Bloody Mary mix for everybody. My whole family are a bunch of Bloody Mary lovers. And, you know, for years they had been saying, like, this is so good. You should be bottling this. You should be selling this. And when your friends and family say, say things to you, you don't really necessarily take it 
you know, seriously. You just think they're being nice. And then um, I had did a version of what I currently sell for a restaurant in, uh, in Manhattan that I opened as an opening bartender. And I would make a batch of it and go away for my days off and come back and it'd be gone. And I'm like, what are you people doing with this? Like, are you bathing in it? Like, how would you go through this much Bloody Mary? You're not even that busy on the weekends. And one of the owners said, you know, people have been asking if they could buy it. And that's when the light bulb went off. And I was like, all right, you know what? My friends and family have been saying this for a while. And now, you know, people who I've never met who don't know me are asking to buy this. Maybe I should consider this. And so I did. And I took the steps after that to figure out how to do it. And I feel like you're being humble when you said that you made a batch. Like, because I, I think you explained to me, like, on site when I met you at um, Taste of uh, Philadelphia and Taste of Lancaster, you actually like made a batch, but it's like a big batch. It's not like a small yeah. amount. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would make, I mean, you know, again, this is basically every week I was making courts and courts and courts. I mean, I don't even know. I don't have an exact number of how many courts, but you know, enough to get them through, you know, three days while I would be off. So, you know, we're talking probably eight, 10, 12 quarts at a time. Um, and yeah. And then, like I said, I'd come back and there'd be either none left or very little. And again, I'm like, you're not even that busy on these days off that they were saying. They're like, people have one and then someone sees it and then someone else orders one and then that person orders two and then other people see it. And then the next thing they know, you know, they're out. And and like I said, they, at that point, they were like, yeah, people were like, where did you get your mix? And they explained that, you know, our bartender, you know, our opening bartender made it. And they go, should she sell it? Yeah. They're like, um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> we need to buy it. And like I said, at that point, I just decided, all right, this is something I should look into and figure out how to do it. Yeah. And I mean, you you time tested that because if I recall, you you had traveled with this recipe of yours to various um, states even because New York wasn't the only state that you brought this to. Um, no, 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 it wasn't. Yeah, because I think you had mentioned Florida and a couple of other states. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm just like, and Florida, like, I mean, I feel like that's, you know, one of the party city, like party states. You know, if you're if you're going to go go have fun in the United States, there's a few, you know, places that you go and Florida's one of them. So I'm sure you had like a huge following as far as, you know, Floridians were concerned. Yeah, I mean, I spent over 20 years in hospitality, everything from a bartender to a bar manager, floor manager, general manager, and I've worked in and uh, bartended in, you know, Philadelphia, Charlotte, North Carolina, South Beach, Miami, uh, North Miami Beach, and of course, here in Manhattan, uh, and in Brooklyn. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, I've been doing this for a while. And um, I love hospitality, always have. And, um, and yeah, and a large part of it, like I said, even as a manager, you know, going into places, getting hired as a new manager on site. And, you know, one of the first things I would do is like taste the Bloody Mary mix, especially places that were big for brunch. And most times I found them lacking. Um, most places didn't have a consistent recipe. They didn't have one person who made it all the time or a recipe that all the bartenders followed. So every bartender was kind of just kind of making it as they went. Um, which also is really horrible because then you don't have the consistency. So if a customer comes in on a Tuesday and orders it from one bartender and then comes back in on a Friday and orders it from another bartender, they're not getting the same thing. Um, and so I would, at that point, I would just go, okay, here's the recipe. You know, I'd say, chef, I need X, Y, and Z from the kitchen. And 
I'd make it and I'm like, here's the recipe. This is the recipe for everybody to follow. You know, if you come in and you're the opening, you know, brunch bartender on Saturday morning, you know, make, you know, batches of it with this recipe. And, you know, they sold more Bloody Marys because, again, really good and also really consistent. Um, it made it easier for the bartenders because they didn't have to kind of add a little of this and add a little of that and figure out, especially since not every bartender likes Bloody Mary. So some of them didn't really care, <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> what they put in it. So they were just kind of like, this is not my thing anyway. Um, and so, yeah, and so that over the years, making Bloody Marys, again, for my friends and for my family, but also in hospitality and all the places, bars and restaurants I worked in, um, definitely helped me kind of figure out what worked for the most amount of people, you know, what people really kind of want in their Bloody Mary. And, um, you know, you and I had spoken about this in person, like, I come from an, a, a time in an era where my dad would, you know, go out and have lunch. Um, and back then, you know, they had a little bit of liquid lunches, as they called them, <laughs> in the 80s, 70s and 80s. And in the summertime, you know, my mom would take me and my brothers down to Center City and meet my dad for lunch. And we would go to this place on Sansom Street. And my parents would order Bloody Mary's. And, you know, Virgin Mary or Shirley Temple for me. But when they ordered it through the bartender, the bartender made it per spec on site as they ordered. You yeah. know, it wasn't just something that he poured out of a, a, a can or a jar. And so, you know, that's the Bloody Mary I'm used to, the ones that are crafted by the bartender for you as you order it, when you order it. And they were always the best ones. And I found that as years went by and, and things changed and, and they, again, started putting them in cans and, and plastic bottles and it became this thing that was easier for the bar staff, but the Bloody Marys lost their importance. They lost their flavor. They lost their standing in the cocktail world. And so I'm like, if I have to single-handedly, you know, bring back the reputation of Bloody Marys, well, that's what I will do. Yeah. And like, and the, because of your family history, you have such a like passion, you know, with the Bloody Mary uh, and relationship even with Bloody mm -hmm. Marys. Um, and now how did you take something where, you know, you're, you're putting it on the market for something like at a large, I mean, yes, you're making them in small batches, but how do you keep your consistency going? I make it, in, I make it by hand. Uh, like you said, in small batches, I do 60 gallons at a time. Um, and I make it by hand um, and I use, you know, the best ingredients I can find. So the mix is organic, vegan and gluten free. Uh, it has no additives, no preservatives, no colors, no dyes. Um, and, you know, I'm literally there in the kitchen at the pot, you know, putting everything in, stirring it up, bottling it by hand, labeling it by hand. So, you know, I'm tasting it every single time I put a batch in that pot, you yeah. know, before it gets bottled, I taste it to make sure it's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Now, um, <laughs> your Bloody Mary mix, I mean, as I said, it tasted so, so good. And I, I, it's been a little bit since I've actually tasted it, but I remember like having like a nice, you know, zing to it. Like the spice level was just, just right. Um, but one of the things that you had mentioned in person when we spoke was that you, you can utilize your Bloody Mary mix for more than just the cocktail. Like, and also, you can use any alcohol because you <laughs> ran down a list of different alcohols <laughs> that you can utilize with with your Bloody Mary mix. So, uh, you know, tell our listeners a little bit about some of the different alcohols that you can use and like how or how you can utilize your Bloody Mary mix outside of just utilizing it for, you know, 
drinking beverages that are, you know, adult. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, as I said to you, um, and as I say to everyone, um, you know, it works with every spirit, not just vodka. Um, it's, you know, rum, gin, tequila, sake, beer, whiskey, mezcal, moonshine. It works with all of them. I know it because I've done it with all of them. <laughs> and I've enjoyed it with all of them. Um, and as a matter of fact, lately at home, the way I've been doing it most is with mezcal. Um, for your listeners out there who are mezcal drinkers and lovers, the smokiness of mezcal with my mix is literally out of control. Um, but yeah, and I tell people, get creative. It doesn't, you know, I, I've had people say to me, look, I'm not really a vodka drinker. You know, I drink tequila or, you know, I drink bourbon. I'm like, it makes a great bloody bourbon. You know, it makes a great bloody Marie. It makes a great bloody, you know, uh, Haru with sake. Um, and so people are like, oh, I never thought of it, you know, thought of it that way. And I'm like, yeah, try it. And they love it. Um, and then also it makes a great Virgin Mary. You know, you don't have to add alcohol to it. You can drink it by itself over ice. And, you know, one of my dad's closest friends, who is a drinker, he drinks alcohol, but he, you know, purchases a few bottles at a time from my dad and he just drinks it over ice in the morning. He said he just likes it for breakfast and that's perfectly acceptable too. Um, and then, you know, cooking, that's my, that's the thing that I really, you know, emphasize for people too, um, is it's, it makes such a great addition to any of your tomato-based recipes or as a sauce for anything. So I'm a veg, so I saute vegetables with it. Uh, cauliflower, green beans, broccoli are my three go-tos. I did have a friend of mine who also did some Brussels sprouts. Mm -hmm. I like to do cauliflower steak in the oven with it. But then I've had people, you know, email me. I had a woman who did a baked white fish in the oven with it with onions and bell peppers. Um, I had a couple who bought some to do some stewed chicken in their crock pot with. I know people who mix it into their burger meat before they make their hamburgers and meatloaf. <clears throat> um, my dad sauteed shrimp in it um, and then puts it over pasta. I mean, it's super versatile. And it's one of those things I think that people think like, oh, I'm going to drink this, so I'm not going to cook with it or eat it, right? Yeah. But I kind of, my joke with people was like, you know how when you're making spaghetti or marinara sauce at home and you have a glass of wine and then you pour <laughs> some of that wine in your sauce? Same thing. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> have a Bloody Mary or a Bloody Maria or whatever it is that you like or a Virgin Mary and then pour some of that Bloody Mary and mix into that marinara and be surprised how absolutely amazing your marinara sauce comes out. So <laughs> it's the same, you know, think outside of the box, use it in all kinds of ways. And I have people who buy it literally just to cook with it. And that's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Cause I mean, when you're going through all the different things and I would be like your father, I would, I would saute shrimp in it. But what I was thinking is, you know, saute up the shrimp and have like a savory or regrets. Oh, yep. That's another one. Yep. <laughs> Because I'm like, that that's right up my alley. I'm like, especially like right now, not that our listeners need to know this, but um, I had <laughs> surgery recently and um, my my jaw like is still healing from it. So I can't even open my mouth very wide. So for me, it's like I'm like I, I'm on a I'm on a liquid only diet, basically, like <laughs> or very viscous oh. food. Um, So for me, like. Even just adding in that like pop of flavor because and, and I wanted to say this before and I forgot to actually say this before we got on air. But I almost feel like your Bloody Mary mix is kind of like full bodied. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people say, oh, you know, sometimes people try it. They're like, oh, I'm thinking soup. I'm like, yep, add it to my gazpacho. Like, works great in soup. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's it. 
being that it's as versatile as it is, um, you know, I'm also wondering, like, what's the shelf life? Because I know you make make it in small batches um, before you you bottle it up and ship it out. But what you know, what what's the shelf life for uh, for that for your uh, product? So unopened, the, um, they're good for a year. Um, and I'm constantly in the kitchen. So, you know, whatever you get, if you're ordering it online or going into a store, um, you know, you're, it's going to be at least a good 11 months. Um, once it's open, two weeks in the fridge, although I have never had anybody tell me it was in their fridge for two weeks. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> I feel like as soon as you uh, you open it, you're going to be like, and it's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> And I mean, like, I Christmas is coming up, like, and all the holidays, actually, Christmas, Hanukkah, uh, like, Kwanzaa. yeah, Kwanzaa, like all of them. And then New Year's and, you know, on yeah. and on and on. We're in that, like, little hump where it's like, it's definitely holiday season, you know, and everybody's throwing parties and like, or, you know, you're doing like secret Santas or, you know, gift giving, 12 days of uh, gift giving or sorry, 10 um, <laughs> like depending on what what you celebrate, it it changes. Like, and I mean, not for nothing, but I feel like this is a perfect thing to like bring to a party or bring as a gift, or even just if you're hosting a party, make sure you have. Because I mean, it is absolutely delicious. And like maybe like BYOA, like bring your own alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, and do you, I mean, I think you have a spice too that, that correlates with your Bloody Mary mix as well. Well, yeah. So, um, it's one of the things that people are always trying to figure out. They're like, I'm getting this, is it old Bay? I'm like, no, I'm getting this smoke. What's the smoke? I'm like, there is no smoke. <laughs> you know, I'm getting this, I'm getting that. I go, no, it's my own special spice blend that I cannot tell you because it's a secret. It's what makes it mine. <laughs> um, but it does give people that feeling of, of a, a, a richer, deeper um, taste. Um, and again, almost like a smokiness, but again, it's vegan. It has no smoke in it. Um, and it does have a really good mouthfeel, which is another thing that I, I always, you know, talk with people about. It doesn't just fade away. It's not thin. You know, it has the horseradish in it. It has, it has you know, that chunkiness to it. And it has a good thickness, but it's not overly thick. You're going to be able to, you know, get it through the straw. Yeah. And, um, and it, yeah, it just has a really good mouthfeel. It doesn't fade away after, um, which, you know, I love and, and other people love, you know. And it's one of those things where I hear people say all the time, like, yeah, I try to make Lady Mary's. I kind of use V8 and whatever. And, and, you know, I'm like, yeah, well, by the time you add the ice and the, the alcohol and then the tomato juice, it's like it's nothing. It's water, you know. <laughs> And this doesn't happen with mine. With mine, it stays, you know, and it's, 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 again, it holds up really well. Um, so, yeah, I, and, and I, do, I do tell people, like I said, to try it with whatever spirit you like. It's going to work with all of them. Um, and generally, you know, so far, all the feedback I, I've gotten has been that. And it's really funny because there's a few restaurants that carry my product, and they both decided to do uh, their cocktail with sake. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say that to people, people are like, I never thought about that. But yeah, it's a rice wine. It's kind of like baka, you know, <laughs> and I always say like, don't do a sweet sake because that's going to not, that's not good. But a good dry sake works amazing with it. Yeah. And I mean, and again, like to anybody who's out there that's having, you know, dry January or, you know, zero proof, you know, parties, 
you can have it just on its own. It has so much flavor and it's absolutely delicious. But um, when we're having fun, time flies by. So we're actually going to have to let our listeners know, like, do you offer shipping across the U.S.? And, you know, where can people find you? Where can they purchase your products? Um, and, you know, where can they find you in person next? Um, so in person next, um, this upcoming weekend, I'm actually going to be at five different events on two days. So we will be at the Edible, uh, Edible Brooklyn event, the Made Edible Brooklyn event in Williamsburg, Brooklyn on Saturday and Sunday, as well as at the Fad Market at the Invisible Dog on Bergen Street, uh, also in Brooklyn. So that's, both of those are Saturday and Sunday. And then additionally on Sunday, I will be at the Grand Bazaar at 77th and Columbus. It's like the oldest uh, kind of bizarre flea market in Manhattan. Um, and so I will be there as well on Sunday. And then that'll be the last place you'll see me in person until February, and I'll be in Long Island. Uh, for the uh, Dine Long Island event in February. Um, but online, you can find me at uh, kbloodymarymix.com, just the letter K, bloodymarymix.com. And on the website, there are recipes for food and for drink, online sales, store locator, and restaurant locator, as well as all of the social media. Great way to follow us and figure, you know, find out places we're going to be upcoming or events we're doing and things that are happening with the company is to follow us online. Uh, I'll also sign up for the newsletter on the website. And also on the website for uh, the holidays, I do an amazing gift bag for those listeners who are interested in purchasing for a, a gift. My friend Rebecca makes the most amazing olive tapenade you've ever had. And it's small batch, woman owned, made by hand in Brooklyn, um, simple ingredients, no additives, no preservatives. And so the gift bag comes with our really beautiful bag, uh, blue, white, or red ribbon, gift tag, large bottle of my mix, large bottle of her tapenade and two rimmers, one togarashi and one celery salt. And it's all in one gift bag. And you can get that online or in person only. Stores do not carry it. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Kia, for joining us. And I hope everybody Thanks, goes out too. and purchases, you know, your Bloody Mary mix. Uh, Jean piped in and said thank you, too. <laughs> thank you, Jean. <laughs> <laughs> so um, everybody, Go find her Bloody Mary, Mary mix. You will absolutely love it. But for now, we will be right back after this short break. Join us on Food Farms and Chefs Radio Show, where we highlight everyone from top industry leaders to startups and the farmers who make it all possible with co-hosts Jean Blum and Amaris Pollock with original episodes that debut every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on WWDB 97.5 HD2 and at www.dbam.com, and on your smart speaker. And we are back with Chef Jean Blum and another informative segment. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Christmas season of Food Farms and Chefs. Uh, last week, we started talking a little bit about Feast of the Seven Fishes, one of the great traditions of the holiday season. And I just thought it was appropriate that we talked about some of the other wonderful traditions and kind of oddities that go around Christmas as well from other parts of the world, whether it be, you know, the great roast of lamb you get in Spain or obviously the most you know all from France, which, by the way, if you're going to go out and buy a Yule log, I know bakeries are going to hate me for this. 
but go to Chinatown and find some of the bakeries in Chinatown. You'll get as wonderful a, you know, Yule log as you're going to find at such an incredibly inexpensive price. But, you know, other things like Christmas pudding in the UK or the farofa with bacon in Brazil or the great Filipino whole roasted pigs that they do to celebrate Christmas and then many of the other great traditions. One thing about that, being a food person now, that you can really get into exploring different cuisines. I mean, you can have your own 12 days of Christmas leading up. And I know this because it's something we kind of do in my family where we try a lot of different dishes. We do the Feast of the Seven Fishes. We do the Lithuanian cuchillos. We do some of the other dishes leading into it. One of my favorite, and we talked about this in the Feast of the Seven Fishes uh, with using bacala, 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 is the Mexican version of that. They take the salted cod, and this is a, a holler out to my friend Mark Kingsdorf, who's now living in Mexico, who's been on our show before. Um, but they take the salted cod, and they mix it with a little tomatoes and ancho chilies and onions and potatoes and olives, and then season it with a little bit of cinnamon, too. And it just kind of warms your soul and, and stomach at the same time. Just a great traditional dish. And again, you have to soak it and rinse it and soak it and rinse it and soak it and rinse it many different times. But, you know, the the bacola, as they say, B-A-C-A-L-O-A in, in Mexican, um, it's just an absolutely wonderful dish. And you wonder how they got that out of, you know, the Italian variation, but just a really thing. In Germany, they do a goose around Christmas that has, you know, history back to the Middle Ages. Uh, it actually is, you know, the tradition of goose at Christmas is actually tied to St. Martin's Day. But it's often stuffed with apples and chestnuts and onions and prunes. And then it's spiced with a little bit of marjoram and an herb that we don't see very often, or a spice actually, that we don't see very often in America, but mugwort. Um, gives it a great flavor. And they serve that with like red cabbage and dumplings and sauerkraut. Just an absolutely fabulous dish. Actually doing a little research, I found a reference to that dish uh, going back as far as 1350 uh, in a cookbook, in a German cookbook. And, you know, gives you an idea how long that tradition has been taking place. There's a, a great author by the name of Calvin uh, Trillian who did uh, a little story about fruitcakes. And, you know, fruitcakes are this, you know, kind of American thing. And his theory was that there's only one fruitcake and it just keeps getting passed from family to family to family and the whole kind of mystique about fruitcakes. And, you know, growing up, it's the one thing you never wanted to see come into the house. I like it. I personally like it. But, you know, fruitcakes have a great tradition for it. And a couple weird oddities about fruitcakes. They last an extremely long time without getting moldy. And I can tell you two proof of this. One is Jay Leno ate a fruitcake on his show that was produced in 1878. That's a bizarre thing in itself. Wow. But then in 2017, the Antarctic Heritage Trust found a 
106-year-old fruitcake that they described as almost edible. But it doesn't get moldy because it's really heavy in alcohol. Another redeeming factor, obviously, you know, but fruitcakes in their day were a display of prosperity. The cost of the ingredients, the dried fruits and the nuts was so expensive that when you serve fruitcake at a holiday, it was considered, you know, uh, a gift of prosperity. It was from a wealthy family. One of the strangest traditions and one of the great marketing plans of all times is the Japanese Christmas celebration of fried chicken. So back in the 70s, they came up with, KFC actually came up with this idea, because Japan did not have a whole lot of different Christmas traditions. So they came up with this idea of having fried chicken at Christmas. <laughs> and they, had a, they created a fried chicken bucket that actually has what's called a Christmas cake in it, that's something tied to, you know, the Japanese culture. And it's a complete Christmas package of KFC fried chicken. Now you're laughing at me, but there's over 3.75 million Japanese families. You actually need to make your KFC reservations months in advance for the Christmas fried chicken bucket. <laughs> okay. Think about that. Calling in October to reserve KFC for Christmas. I mean, the brilliance of KFC on that one. I, I, I just, you know, I'm at a loss for words on that one in particular. It's like a Christmas story, but like in reverse a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we should almost make a movie about it. I, I really do. You know, we could have a lot of fun with that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I almost want to get somebody online from uh, – KFC to talk about that. My <laughs> daughter will be in Japan for a semester uh, starting the 8th of January, so maybe I need to uh, have her do a little research for us and you know, do a little KFC tasting uh, if I can get her to eat meat again, but um, <laughs> whole different story in itself. So I have uh, Eastern European. I've, I've talked about this many times. I actually did a special on it last year, um, but in the Lithuanians, we do uh, kuchios. So kuchios is a, is a great tradition. Um, originally, it was nine dishes. It is a pagan history or pagan, you know, it, it was originally a pagan custom. Um, then it became 12. Obviously, you know, Christmas, we talked about this. You get the 12, so it's one for each of the apostles. Originally, Cochillos, and, and my family, Cochillos, is a little bit different. Originally, there was no meat, no dairy, and no hot food. So the, the dishes would take almost a week to prepare. And you would find things like mushrooms and cold sauerkraut and pickled herring and smoked eel and potatoes and other types of fish that were all served room temperature. In my family, we stick to the no dairy, no meat. We do have some hot dishes now, but we do the smelts. <coughs> you know, we do the sauerkraut at room temperature. Mm. We do cooked prunes that are served either warm or room temperature. Uh, my mother would do the pickled herring, so that was a lot. You know, 
in that aspect. And then we do the boiled potatoes and we'll do haddock and some other types of fish. But really that's the, you know, the potatoes tradition is, is very Eastern European. I love it. Um, as a kid, we complained that we never wanted to have that meal. My mother threatened to stop making it, and we all protested and made her keep making it for years to come. <laughs> you know, you go down to South America, you know, you get to the Latin cultures, Costa Rica, beef and pork tamales are what you get on Christmas Eve, you know, big thing. Um, in England, Christmas pudding. So, Amherst, for you, what's the main ingredient in plum pudding? Uh, I would assume plums. <laughs> you would assume incorrectly, though, because plums, or the, the idea of plums, pre-Victorian, plums were raisins. So the main ingredient in plum pudding is actually dried fruit and raisins, hmm. not plums itself. Plum pudding, for those who have never had it, and I suggest, I, I do not suggest you try making it, um, <laughs> But I, if you want to try it, it's a wonderful thing. It is kind of a cardiologist nightmare. Oh, really? It's made with suet and egg and molasses and spices and dried fruit. So it's going to be a little rich in cholesterol, a heavier dish like that. But, you know, a really, really uh, great thing in itself, a great tradition. In Sweden, the big thing, they have a three-course uh, meal at Christmas called uh, Dubont, uh, J-U-L-B-O-R-D. It's a three-course dinner. The first course is pickled herring. The second course is cold cuts. The third course is, of course, I can get behind in a heartbeat. That's rice pudding. But the common thing about that, they make these little buns in the shape of an S that are actually yellow in tint and seasoned with saffron. Ooh. So the saffron buns that you get with the dinner are the common denominator with that. And just a really cool kind of unique tradition to have. In the Philippines, as I said, uh, they do uh, Noche Buena, which is their Christmas Eve thing. They do it after uh, the Mass of the Rooster, the Misa de Gallo. Um, but you're either going to get a you know, ham to the leg or you're going to get a whole spit-roasted pig. I mean, I... Personally, I can't think of a better way to celebrate Christmas than a whole spit roasted pig. But, right. you know, we get the ham here in America. You know, it's a common thing. But, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know uh, of a better way to get that whole thing. One of the other cool things about the Philippines, the Philippines are, you know, it's a, it's a very Catholic community. They are really big on Christmas season. So Christmas carols. Uh, the singing of Christmas carols and Christmas carols on the radio and such begins usually late September, and they run until mid-January. The official Christmas season in the Philippines and Christmas being celebrated is the 16th of December till the first Sunday of the New Year. So, like, what a great place to go and, and get in tune uh, in my household. Uh, when we eat Thanksgiving dinner, that's when the Christmas music starts. And my wife will tell you it's all Christmas music all the time, uh, <laughs> except when she's not in the car, then it's back to sports radio. But, um, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but, you know, um, I have to change it before I get her in the car sometimes. 
but you know, it's a it's a great long tradition of celebrating that. <clears throat> now, I personally think if you started Christmas carols in September, I'd be blowing my brains out by December. But it's a fun thing to do. Uh, Polish, they have these wonderful Polish cookies. They go by a lot of different names, but uh, Kaliski, uh, they're jelly filled, but the dough has either sour cream or cream cheese in it. So it's really cool. That being said, go out and discover your own 12 days of Christmas. Bring something home this year. Try something different that you've never had before. And Amaris and I and all the crew at Food Farms and Chefs, Brett and everyone else, we want to extend a very, very happy Christmas, a very Merry Christmas to everybody. Get out, enjoy, try new foods, and Merry Christmas season to everybody. All right, everyone. If you would like to find us online, you can follow Gene Blum at... IBFoodie2 or Gene Blum on social media. Or if you'd like any recipes for any of these dishes we just talked about, you can email me at IBFoodie2 at yahoo.com. That's I-B-F-O-O-D-I-E, the number two at yahoo.com. And you can find me online at ARPolicus. Or if you would like to be a sponsor or guest on the show, you can email me at ARPolicus at gmail.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next week.